Please take your Bibles with me and let's turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. We recently studied Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 39, delighting in God's predestinating mercy that leaves the elect without charge before God. Nothing can be laid to their charge. We saw in that passage that he that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, Paul referring to himself and the Romans and God's elect, how shall he not also with him freely give us all things? And we saw the certainty of our salvation based on the purpose of God given to us before the world began, when he foreknew us as his own and predestinated us to be his children. Let me read to you the first eight verses of 1 Timothy chapter 2. I exhort, therefore, that, first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Whereunto I am ordained a preacher and an apostle. I speak the truth in Christ and lie not a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and verity. I will, therefore, that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. Amen and amen. Thank you, Lord, for your word. If you ever discuss the doctrine of salvation with others, they will eventually get to 1 Timothy chapter 2, where they try to use verse 4 and verse 6 as their certain rebuttals of our doctrine that Jesus Christ died for the elect only. Because in verse 4 it says, Who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. And in verse 6 it says, Who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. What I want to do in a few minutes is remind you of what we believe about Jesus Christ's death for the elect only. Give you an answer to this passage that I hope I can show clearly in the eight verses that are here. And third, prepare us for the Lord's table by delighting in the fact that a ransom has been paid for you and for me. We were captured, bound up, and willingly so. In the palace of the strong man, but the Lord Jesus Christ gave his life a ransom for us to deliver us from those claims that divine justice had against us, that we might be saved, receive the adoption of sons, and have the hope of an eternal inheritance, all through the death and righteousness of Jesus Christ. 
We can easily prove what this passage doesn't mean because of what the rest of the Bible teaches. And we can easily prove what it does mean. I hope I can show you that from what it says in these eight verses. God sent His Son to die for the elect. And every single one of those for whom Christ died will most certainly be saved without the loss of a single one. We believe this because the Bible teaches us this. But let's work our way through these verses and see if we can't understand the point that Paul was making. He was making a point about prayer. Because verses 1 and 2 and verse 8 are about prayer. And I'm thankful that the Word of God is written the way it is. And you can't go in and take a verse 4 and take a verse 6 and think you've arrived at truth unless you understand verse 4 and verse 6 in light of the verses around it. Prayer is the subject matter. Prayer. Beyond what they would have ordinarily prayed for. Expanding their horizon to include more objects for their prayer than they were prone to do. As part of that explanation and justification for praying for all men, the Apostle is going to explain that God's grace and His desire for men and the mediatorship of Jesus Christ extends beyond the comfort zone of these people that Paul and Timothy were dealing with. You'll see that, I hope, as we go forward. We could go to various places in the Bible to show that Jesus Christ died for the elect only. In John chapter 6, Jesus said the will of His Father was that He would redeem those the Father had given Him and not lose one of them. Jesus Christ did not die to make salvation possible for any. He did not die to provide a way for men to save themselves. He came to do the will of God, and the will of God was that Jesus Christ would die for those the Father had given Him. John 6 declares it plainly in verses 38 and 39. In John 10, Jesus said, My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. Again, referring to the sheep of Jesus Christ, Jesus said the Father gave those sheep to Him. And the reason some men don't believe is because they're not sheep. It's not that some men aren't sheep because they don't believe, as it is commonly taught. In John 17 and verse 2, again we're in the, the epistle, the gospel of John, excuse me, the gospel of John, where John wrote the words of Jesus Christ in his intercession prayer to God, that as the Father had given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as God had given him. God had given him authority over all flesh, but he was going to give eternal life to as many as God had given him. When we come to Romans chapter 8, we find that those that are glorified in heaven are those that God predestinated to it. They're the ones God chose, and they're called the elect in Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 39. Those that God loved will never, never be separated from that love, because that love is absolutely certain and inviolate through the Lord Jesus Christ. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who shall separate us, or what shall separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord? And the obvious answer that is taught so clearly there is nothing. In Romans chapter 9, we are taught that there are vessels of mercy and there are vessels of wrath. And God has formed both from the clay of humanity. 
He is the potter and we are the clay. And if he wants to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor, he is God and we do not have a right to question him. We only have a responsibility to praise him. And so there are vessels of wrath and there are vessels of mercy which God has chosen out of Jews and Gentiles, as Romans 9, 21 through 24 declare. We come to Ephesians chapter 1, and God chose some in Christ Jesus before the world began, according to the good pleasure of His will, that they would be made accepted in the Beloved, which is Christ Jesus our Lord. We come to 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 9, and we're told that salvation is by God's grace and purpose, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. We can go to other places and read that there are those ordained of old to this condemnation that were not ordained to salvation. We had our opportunity in the Garden of Eden. God offered eternal life to us. There was a tree of life and it was not off limits. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil was off limits. God offered eternal life to the human race. We chose the lie of the devil and sin, death, destruction, hell and misery instead of eternal life. And after we ate of that tree, God put a flaming cherubim in the way to keep the tree of life because it was no longer an option. It was a gift by God to those that he chose to give everlasting salvation to that would be his children for eternity. The Apostle Paul labored for the elect's sake. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 10. With a few of those thoughts in mind, and many more could be made, such as Jesus laid down his life for the sheep. And Jesus loved the church and gave himself for it. But with those thoughts in mind, let us go into these verses and see what we can learn. Because we have verses 4 and 6 thrown at us, remember our purpose. Let's remind ourselves that we do believe what I just stated to you, that Jesus died for the elect, showing his particular, effectual, glorious, wonderful, saving grace and love toward us by dying for the elect, that these verses have an explanation in their context, and that while we're in the passage, let's notice that Jesus is our ransom. Amen. We were kidnapped, and the Lord Jesus Christ bought us, redeemed us, ransomed us by giving his life in payment for divine justice that had the claim against us. I exhort, therefore, that, first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. A primary part of being a Christian is to pray. And Paul here is exhorting Timothy and teaching Timothy of how he ought to conduct himself in the churches of Jesus Christ, which was to include broader prayer than they were prone to give. He explains that in verse 2 by mentioning a category that it would have been hard to pray for, and that's for kings and for all that are in authority. Because those kings were enemies of the gospel. Those kings persecuted them. Those kings were Gentiles. Those kings were pagans. It was hard to pray for them. It seemed contrary to nature. The Jews for 2,000 years had lived without praying for Philistines very often. They hadn't prayed for the Amorites, Ammonites, Jebusites, Hittites, Girgashites, and the other enemies of Canaan. They had prayed that God would bless them to annihilate them. The gospel had been limited, the word of God limited to the people of Israel. 
No other nation had the privileges of the Word of God like the nation of Israel did. And so they were limited in their prayers. But prayer is an important part of God's worship. And that's why we have here the, the apostles saying that, first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks should be made. That's an important part of worship. And we want to remember that. Being a Christian means you're a praying person. And let us pray as we should. Let us pray regularly and often. And let us pray scripturally. The Jews were loath to pray for the Gentiles because Jews hated Gentiles. The Jews had a nationalistic spirit, the likes of which we've seldom ever seen, because God had chosen them as his preferred, blessed, chosen, adopted nation. And for them to pray for Gentiles was beyond them. Now, we do find some examples of it where it's commanded in the Old Testament for them to pray for their captors, but they were not prone to do it on their own. The Gentiles despised the Jews who were a byword and a proverb in the earth, and who were perverse and froward people, as the Bible tells us, contrary to all men. And so the Gentiles didn't have any appreciation for the Jews. They caused trouble in the Roman Empire. They caused trouble in cities they went to because they had a different religion, and they were arrogant about it. And in some senses, rightly so, because they worshipped the Jehovah God of heaven. There was a nationalistic hatred for Rome. Because Rome was a foreign, usurping, oppressing, occupying power that had come into these individual nations and ruled over them. So it was hard to pray for your captors. It was hard to pray for pagan foreigners that had come in and were occupying your nation and were taxing you. Remember, there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. Not just the Roman Empire, but all the nations under the Roman Empire. That's what happens when a government takes over your country. They want your tax proceeds to go to them. There was persecution of Christians by these governmental authorities. So there was, there was grief caused by kings and for all in authority. And so there was resentment of government because of what they had done to Christians. And so Paul's expanding and broadening the objects of their praying to all men for kings and for all that are in authority, as he's going to tell us in verse 2. Now, there's various kinds of praying. Supplication is begging. Prayers are solemn petitions. Intercessions are acting like a mediator on behalf of another. Giving of thanks is part of godly praying. Now, it tells us in the first verse that we're to pray for all men. Now, let's do a little bit of Bible reasoning. The Bible tells us to study the Word of God and to rightly divide the Word of Truth. We find all men in verse 1, all men in verse 4, and all in verse 6. If we take the word all in these three cases to mean every man without exception, we run into a doctrinal contradiction with the rest of the New Testament. We run into a doctrinal contradiction in verse 4 where it says who will have all men to be saved. God has a will. But God's will when it comes to salvation is not for all men to be saved. God's will is for his elect to be saved according to the good pleasure of his will. Ephesians chapter 1 verses 3 through 6. He doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. If salvation was dependent just upon the will of God and all means every man without exception, then all men would be saved. Because God's will would be such and God does his will. No man can question it or stay it. 
If it depends upon man's will, then salvation is of him that willeth and of him that runneth. But Romans chapter 9 tells us, so then it is not of him that willeth, but of God that giveth mercy. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Romans 9.15 So when it says in 4, who will have all men to be saved, if we take the words all men and make it every man without exception, then we've got a contradiction with the word of God. So we have to understand the words all men in some other sense. When we come to verse, let's go on in verse 4. And to come to the knowledge of the truth. It is not the will of God for all men to have the truth. That's why he kept his word from all men on planet earth for 2,000 years except the nation of Israel. How many more examples do you want from the word of God? He spoke in parables so that they would not know the truth. In Acts chapter 16, Paul is saying to go north and tried to go south, but the Holy Spirit hindered him because he wanted him to go west to arrive at Philippi for the conversion of those saints. God sends strong delusion for men to believe a lie, according to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Paul endured all things for the elect's sake, not the whole world's sake of all men without exception. Therefore, all men, in verse 4, cannot be every man without exception. It's got to have a different sense. In verse 6, who gave himself a ransom for all. If Jesus Christ gave himself the ransom price for every man without exception, then every man without exception is going to be in heaven ransomed. If you say, no, it's not that way, then I ask you this. Is the fault with the ransom... Is the fault that all men without exception are not in heaven because there's a fault with the ransom? Don't you dare speak of Jesus Christ that way. Jesus Christ was all sufficient as a ransom paid. You tell me it means all men without, every man without exception? Then I'll ask you, was the ransom received, accepted? Did it satisfy the one in charge of our eternal destinies? The Bible tells us that God was satisfied The doctrine of satisfaction is that the ransom of Jesus Christ was more than sufficient for the sins of all those for whom he died. If you make the all in verse 6, every man without exception, then we run into a contradiction. And we have ransomed men in hell. There is no one in hell that was ransomed by the Lord Jesus Christ. His ransom was effectual. It was glorious. It was a wonderful price. It was accepted. He offered himself not to men, but he offered himself without spot to God, and he was accepted. Given that, we know the words all men in verse 4 and the word all in verse 6 cannot mean every man without exception. It means something else. And I will tell you now what it means, and I will show you that these eight verses are beautiful. It means all kinds of men without distinction. High and low, rich and poor, Greek and and barbarian, Jew and Gentile, in authority, under authority, bond or free, male or female, all kinds of men without distinction. Not every man without exception, or we have a contradiction in the Word of God. Paul is making a point here to expand their praying. They were loath to pray for their enemies. That's why that's an important part of the gospel of Jesus Christ, because it is something we do not do by nature. But it was something to be pressed upon the church. 
And so when we have the words all men in verse 1, it's that we are to pray for all kinds of men without distinction. Gentiles, pagans, foreigners, Romans, whoever it might be, expand. And the focus point is to pray for those most difficult of that group, for kings and for all that were in authority, to pray for Caesar and to pray for Pilate and to pray for Herod and Agrippa, to pray for Aretas and the other kings that we read about in the Bible. This is the lesson that is given here in these eight verses. When we take the word all and put a sense on it like that, some would say that we are twisting the word of God because they say, and this is as deep as they get, and I've said it before, all means all. And that's all, all means. Oh, really? Really. Read your Bible. Anybody that says that has not read their Bible with honesty or with intelligence or they're malicious in misrepresenting the Bible. The word all is generally used in a limited sense. Not meaning all, every one of a certain thing without exception. Let's give you a couple of examples. And I've done this before, but we, we want to know what the Bible teaches. 1 Timothy 6.10 tells us the love of money is the root of all evil. Is the love of money the root of every act of evil without exception? Or is the love of money the root of all kinds of evil without distinction? Does the love of money get men into all kinds of trouble? Yes, it does. Did Adam eat the fruit off the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because somebody paid him to do it? Did David sleep with Bathsheba because somebody paid him to do it? Did the Jews crucify the Lord Jesus Christ because somebody paid them to do it? The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. When Paul said, I am made all things to all men that I might by all means save some. Did that mean that Paul was every single thing that he could be in the world without exception? In order to save every single man in the world without exception? By being as accommodating in everything without exception? Or does it mean that Paul became all kinds of a man to different kinds of people that he might save some? First Corinthians 9.22 I don't believe that Paul became a sodomite to save the sodomites. I don't believe it. I deny your doctrine. I deny your interpretation. I deny your use of 1 Corinthians 9.22. In 1 Corinthians 6.12 it says all things are lawful for me. Were all things lawful for Paul? Or were there all kinds of things lawful for Paul? But he would not be brought under the power of any. Not all things were lawful for Paul. There was a whole lot of things that are sinful. That's how we understand the word. Now when we look at this, thank the God of heaven that verses 1 and 2 are about prayer and that verse 8 is about prayer. Do you know what he's telling you? All eight verses are about prayer. All eight verses are about prayer. And he's trying to get, he's telling Timothy, this is what we need in our churches. We need to pray for all men. We need to pray for Gentiles, barbarians, Greeks, Romans. We need to pray for kings and for all their authority, even if they're persecuting us, even if they're pagans. We need to pray for them so that we, the saints, a minority in the world, can have the welfare and the benefit of their protection so that we can live godly and honest lives. We can live quiet and peaceable lives in all godliness and honesty. That's what those two verses are about. And I want you to teach in the churches that we are to pray for all kinds of men. 
High and low, rich and poor, masters, servants, bond, free, Jew, Gentile. Pray for them all. Those Jews that don't want to pray for Gentiles, you teach them to pray for Gentiles. Because as he's going to tell us in verse 7, I am a teacher of the Gentiles. I, a Jew, was chosen by Jesus Christ. I say the truth in Christ, I lie not. I've been commissioned to teach the Gentiles. There's nothing wrong for praying for Gentiles. If they're Gentiles that don't love Jews, teach them to pray for the Jews anyway. If they've been persecuted by Caesar, teach them to pray for kings and for all their authority. That's what the word all men means in verse 1. You say, can you help me prove that just a little bit more? Well, in 1 John 5, 16, it tells you not to pray for him that has sinned a sin and a death. So obviously we have an exception right off the bat with what's in 1 Timothy 2, 1. Do you pray for the dead? I thought we had come out of Rome. I thought we were never in Rome. Why are you praying for the dead? If you're going to pray, if you believe that all men means every man without exception, then you should be praying for the dead. But you know better than that. Paul wasn't telling Timothy to pray for Cain. Paul wasn't telling Timothy to pray for Enoch. It wouldn't help with Cain and Enoch didn't need it. Paul wasn't telling Timothy to pray for Jezebel or Herod the Great, who was already dead, or those in hell or those in heaven. Or those not yet born? Or those already dead? He was telling Timothy that his prayers should include all sorts of men. All kinds of men. Get it expanded out. To every man that can benefit the saints of God. Because he tells you the purpose of the prayer. And notice, it isn't a prayer for world evangelism, is it? I read some, I read some things that discouraged me so much that men would go into a passage like this and turn this into praying for the salvation of the world. It doesn't say anything about praying for salvation. It tells us why we should pray for all these different kinds of people that affect the lives of the Christians. The last half of verse 2, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. It doesn't say anything about them getting their names in the book of life, being saved from hell or going to heaven. It says we need to expand our prayers and pray for these rulers who are over us so that we can have some protection under the laws and that their persecution will be lifted, their legislation will be in our favor, that we can live these kind of lives. That's what the first two verses tell us. A a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. That's a pretty small all, isn't it? Did you pay taxes to Caesar Augustus? Did Attila the Hun? Did Genghis Khan? Very small world and a very small all. The Roman Empire at that particular point in time that was taxed. This is what the first two verses mean. The, 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 conversa- the, the, the lesson from the Apostle Paul to Timothy is prayer. Broaden out prayer. Men should be praying. They should be supplicating, begging and entreating God, and interceding, and giving of thanks for all kinds of men. Those men that benefit us and are our benefactors, give God thanks for them. You don't give God thanks for Hymenaeus and Alexander that are in the previous verse, the last verse of chapter 1. Paul had delivered them to Satan that they would learn not to blaspheme. You don't give thanks for them. You give thanks for all kinds of men that are benefactors of Christians. And you pray for men in positions of authority that can help us, protect us, so that we can lead quiet and peaceable lives in all godliness and honesty. That's what the first two verses are teaching. All kinds of men. Not dead men, not men in heaven or hell. 
not the enemies of the gospel and false teachers. You pray that we be delivered from those men, Second Thessalonians 3 teaches us. So then we come to verse 3, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. What is good and acceptable? Praying for all kinds of men. The last part of verse 2 is also good and acceptable, but that's not his point. His point is expand your praying for all kinds of men, because that's good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. And we're taught that he sends his rain on the evil and the good, his sunshine on the just and the unjust. He sends fruitful seasons from heaven for all kinds of men. And we are to show that same treatment of others at large, all kinds of men. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. Now, by the Holy Spirit's wisdom, we are able to get an illustration in the next three verses of why we should broaden our praying. Why Paul gave Timothy this lesson. At the same time, we learn gospel truth. It's wonderful. But verses 4, 5, and 6 are there for a reason. They're there for a reason to justify what Paul had just said in verses 1 through 3. Verse 4, who will have all men to be saved. God has purposed to save all kinds of men. There were some in Caesar's household that were saved according to the word of God. He has saved the high and he has saved the low. He has saved Jews and Gentiles because he's made his vessels of mercy of both Jews and Gentiles. And that's what verse 4 is teaching. Who will have all kinds of men to be saved. It cannot mean every man without exception. It means all kinds of men without distinction. It means barbarians. It means Greeks. It means bond. It means free. It means masters. It means servants. It means the educated and the ignorant. It means the high and the low. It means kings that are in authority and governors that are in Judea. Who will have all kinds of men. The word all men in verse 4 better equal the all men in verse 1 because that's the point. Verse 4 is defending the lesson of verse 1. If Paul's telling Timothy to do this, Paul's now giving Timothy the reason for it. Because God has chosen to save all kinds of men. We don't make Jewish-Gentile distinctions anymore. God's broken down the middle wall of partition between them, and they're in one body. We don't make that distinction. Who will have all men to be saved. We've already gone over the fact that if God's will is for every man without exception to be saved, then they would be saved. If you ask one of these Arminians who throws 1 Timothy 2, 4 at you, ask them when they're saying, See, God wants everyone to be saved. Ask them, how did you get saved? They will usually say something like this, God and His grace, God and His grace got a hold of me and turned me around and set me on the path for heaven. Well, brother, if you want to talk that way about God's grace and it's God's will that every man be saved, then why doesn't He do that for everyone? And to come to the knowledge of the truth. How do we learn the truth? It takes a preacher How shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? How shall they believe unless they hear? And how shall they hear without a preacher? Does God send his preachers everywhere? Psalm 147 verses 19 and 20 tells us only Jacob had the word of God in the Old Testament. You can read the New Testament and find out that Jesus himself said to his disciples, Go only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Well, what was happening to the rest of the poor world? Didn't he want them to come to a knowledge of the truth? Not yet. Paul told the philosophers in Athens in Acts chapter 17 
that in times past God winked at your ignorance, but now commandeth all men to repent. For thousands of years God left those nations in ignorance. It was not His will that all men would come to a knowledge of the truth. He sends strong delusion to some men. It is only those He has chosen from the beginning. Second Thessalonians 2.13, I'm going to say it again. I love that verse right now. I feel bound to give thanks all the way to God. Don't you? But we are bound to give thanks all the way to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. Belief of the truth is something God chooses you to. Whereunto He called you by our gospel. And He didn't choose all men to that. He spoke in parables so men wouldn't have the truth. So when we look at verse 4, it is Paul giving an illustration of God's dealings outside the commonwealth of Israel with Gentiles, with Caesar's household, with Greeks, with barbarians. So if God is dealing with them, Timothy, not all of them, but all kinds of them, then you should be praying for them and our churches should be praying for them. Are you with me? Does it? That's what verse 4 is there for. That's what verse 4 is teaching. Do you know if you're saved, it's because God had a will to save you. And He exercised that will. Do you know if you've come to a knowledge of the truth, it's because God chose it to you according to the good pleasure of His will. Do you know the Bible said Jesus Christ on one occasion when He was preaching to a multitude and He saw... He saw the poor, uneducated, listening to him and believing him and wanting to follow him in obedience. And he saw the seminary educated, rejecting him. Oh, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, I thank thee that thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them unto babes. Now, you want to tell me that he's got a will that all men come to a knowledge of the truth when he's hid the truth from the wise and prudent and revealed it to babes? God opened the heart of Lydia so that she attended to the things that were spoken of Paul. Did God open all men's hearts to attend to the things that were spoken of Paul? Most men rejected what Paul had to say. So we understand this verse. He has just, Paul has just told Timothy, we need to expand our praying beyond Jews into those in authority, even if they've persecuted us, even if they're pagans, even if they're Romans, even if they're occupying empire in our nation. Even if they've killed our own president. Even if they've taken over and they're taxing us. Pray for them. Intercede for them. Supplicate for them. Give thanks for the good ones. So that we can continue to lead quiet and peaceable lives in all godliness and honesty. Prayer is the point. Prayer is the lesson. And verse 4 is an explanation showing God's treatment and that God is saving all kinds of men. And God is showing the truth to all kinds of men now, not just to the Jewish nation. And therefore, we should be able to pray for all kinds of men. Am I making... ah. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. I remember memorizing that verse by itself a long time ago when I was a child. But what's the verse there for? What's that verse stuck right here in the middle of eight verses about prayer? Because there's one God. He's the God of the Jews, and He's the God of the Gentiles. And there's one mediator, Jesus Christ. He is the Savior of the Jews, and He is the Savior of the Gentiles. And that's why it's right there. Now, we get more out of the verse than that, don't we? We love to read about there being one God. 
Jehovah God our Father in heaven, and one mediator which rules out Pope Benedict the Sixteenth and a whole lot of other Benedicts, innocents, Johns and Pauls and Georges. Oh, I don't know if there was a George. There's no Mary in our religion because there's only one mediator. There's no Joseph Smith. There's only one mediator. We love 1 Timothy 2.5, but I want you to understand what it's there for. It's because is he not God of the Jews? Is he God of the Jews only? Or also of the Gentiles? Amen. That's the answer. That's why that verse is there. Paul, Timothy, we need to expand our praying to include those pagan enemies of ours that are in positions of authority that can help keep the churches of Jesus Christ safe by expanding our praying. Supplicate for him, Timothy. Intercede for him. Give thanks for the good ones. Because look at God. He is saving from all nations now. He's showing the truth in all nations. Because there's one God that's the God of all nations. Of, of all kinds of men in all nations. There's only one Savior in all nations. The man, Christ Jesus. Who gave himself a ransom for all kinds of men. Jesus died for all kinds of men. It's no longer a parochial religion. It's no longer Israel only. It's no longer Jews only. It's been expanded. Look at Timothy. I'm a preacher of the Gentiles. I'm a Jewish boy teaching Gentiles. I say the truth in Christ. I lie not. Why would he have to put that in there? Because it was a profound, dramatic change. Right. Who gave himself a ransom for all. What's a ransom? It's the price paid to deliver you from captivity. Do you remember four or five years ago when I preached a sermon to you about I have found a ransom? Mm -hmm. Job chapter 33. You know, if God, is, if God is very merciful to you and there's one man among a thousand that's near you when you're in trouble and you're discouraged and he can come and tell you, I have found a ransom. It's wonderful in Job chapter 33. And I told you the story of Charles Lindbergh and the crime of the century in 1932 when Charles Lindbergh, that famous aviator for the United States who had first flown all the way across the Atlantic Ocean, he bought 390 acres outside of Hopewell, New Jersey where he kept his family because he hated the public eye because he was so popular in our country. He had a little boy. And that little boy was kidnapped. And it became the, the, the crime of the century. J. Edgar Hoover was in office way back then. He was a younger man than when you may remember him from history books. The president got involved. All the papers were about the Lindbergh kidnapping. And I told you about that. The Lindbergh kidnapping. And Charles Lindbergh determined that he was going to do whatever the kidnappers wanted because he wanted his son back. And he got a little, he got, he got the boy's pajamas back. About two years old, if I remember correctly. He got the boy's pajamas back a couple of weeks later so that he knew that the kidnappers that were communicating with him actually had his son. And then he was told to meet them in a certain woods. And he took 50,000 in gold notes to go get his son back. That was the ransom to get his son. The ransom is the amount of money you pay to get your child back from kidnappers. So Charles Lindbergh went into the woods with a friend and $50,000 in gold notes and gave, them, gave it over to the kidnappers who gave him a note as to where he could go and find his child. And when he went there, there was no child. And a year later, a truck driver found his child four miles from his home in a ditch with his head caved in 
the kidnappers had taken that baby boy out of a second-story nursery window, and while they were driving away, bashed its skull in and threw it in the ditch. You say, why do you tell... I don't ever tell stories. Don't talk to me about stories. I'm just using one because I want you to understand what the word ransom means. We have a ransom that was paid and it was accepted. And we were delivered. We were delivered. You know, God should have caved our skulls in and thrown us in the ditch. We deserved it. We asked for it. We chose it in the Garden of Eden. But God delivered us by sending His own Son. He sent His own Son to die for us. He sent His Son into those dark woods. And He was hung on a tree for us. That was the ransom price. That's what verse 6 is talking about. Who gave Himself a ransom for all. All kinds of men. What if Gentiles had been cut out? This church would be hopeless. What if the poor were cut out? This church would be hopeless. What if the base were cut out? This church would be hopeless. God reached down and saved the base and the foolish and the poor and the Gentiles. He saved us. Who gave Himself. He gave Himself a ransom for all. Jesus said in Matthew 20, 28, Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister. And to give His life a ransom for many. To be testified in due time. The gospel would go forth into all nations and testify of this glorious transaction between God and Jesus Christ for all kinds of men of all, of all nations of the earth. So that when we get to Revelation chapter 5 and verse 9, we see a multitude there that no man can number out of. Out of every kindred, family, tongue, and nation. It doesn't say every member of every kindred, tongue, and family, and nation, but out of. There's a great multitude there of all kinds of men from all places on earth. And he was testified in due time. Listen to these verses. Who hath saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works but according to His own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began, but is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. The gospel has gone into all the world since the days of the apostles, telling that God's gracious salvation has been extended into all the families and tribes of the earth. All kinds of men, without distinction. And God will have all kinds of men, without distinction, even us, saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And Jesus Christ gave Himself a ransom for all kinds of men, without distinction, like you and me. Verse 7, whereunto, that is, this gospel... And these facts that I'm telling you about, Timothy, whereunto I am ordained a preacher and an apostle, I speak the truth in Christ, and lie not, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and verity. God had kept the truth confined to the Jewish nation. And Paul is saying, look, I'm a Jewish boy. Oh, was he ever? Hebrew of the Hebrews. Israelite of the Israelites. Look at Timothy. This is how true it is. I am a teacher of the Gentiles. I've been on Mars Hill, Timothy. I have preached to the philosophers of the Gentiles. I have preached to the philosophers of the Greek nation. What have I preached to them? What I'm telling you about here. 
that God, and when I walked out of there, Timothy, Dionysius and Tamaris got up and followed me out because God has saved from every nation, because he saved all kinds of men without distinction. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and verity. Verse 8, I will therefore. Therefore tells us that Paul is drawing a conclusion of seven verses he's just given on prayer. I will therefore that men pray everywhere. Lifting up holy hands. You better have a holy life when you pray or your prayers are going to be hindered. Without wrath. You better be at peace in your relationships, whether it's your wife. Your prayers can be hindered if you're not at peace with your wife or with other men. And doubting. Without doubting. You're to pray in faith, believing, and ye shall receive what you ask for. There's a lesson on prayer. In that lesson on prayer, we have those wonderful verses, verses 4, 5, and 6. And when they use the words all men and all, it's talking about all kinds of men from all kinds of nations, in all kinds of status of life, particularly kings and all that are in authority, because that's the one that Paul mentions specifically. And there's a reason for that, because the prayer requests are not for the salvation of the lost. The prayer requests are for God's elect to have safe, protected lives and to be able to have quiet and peaceable lives in all godliness and honesty. And how did Paul make the point to Timothy? Look at his salvation. It's outside the borders of Israel. It's in every nation. And all kinds of men are being saved. Even Caesar's household. That's 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 8. But it tells us this, that God has a will that all kinds of men would be saved. And to come to the knowledge of the truth, there's one God, there's one mediator, and that one mediator is Christ Jesus, the man. The man Christ Jesus. And that man Christ Jesus gave himself a ransom for all kinds of men, including you and me, to be testified in due time. And in due time, God got some men to us, didn't he? To tell us the truth, that Jesus Christ had given himself a ransom for us. God's accepted the ransom, and the ransom is of infinite value. There's no fault in the ransom, and there's no fault in the God accepting the ransom. Salvation is of the Lord, and it is finished, just like Jesus said it was. May the Lord bless us to delight in Jesus as our ransom as we come to the Lord's table.